Why don't we stand together for the reading of God's Word? We are in Luke chapter 4. We're beginning in verse 1. Chapter 4 and verse 1 says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out all through the surrounding country. This is God's Word for God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. God's Word for God's people. Lord, if we did not have Your Word, we'd be in a totally different spot right now. But we do. It's the greatest gift that You have given us, that You speak to us through Your Word. And so, Lord, let us have listening ears this morning. And Lord, what we are not, please make us. What we have not, please give us. And what we know not, please teach us. Empowered and led by Your Spirit, informed by Your Word, and encouraged and loved on in community. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. i got a couple, two other quick announcements. One, uh, Brian and Abby are in labor right now as we speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if she's doing that, but we are, all right? And so Brian texted us, and so we'll be praying for them throughout the day. Hopefully we'll have some news on that. And then we also have uh, one of our newest members of the crossing. Where's uh, our boys at? Uh, where's Troy and Sydney? Where are they at? Oh, over here, Troy and Sydney, go ahead and stand up and show us a little Wyatt. Do the old Lion, lion uh, there it is, Lion King. Little Wyatt. That's a strong name, Wyatt. We got a couple Wyatts in here, don't we? Waylon, oh, Waylon. Well, yeah, another guy. Well, I thought we had Wyatt, another Wyatt. Who's got a Wyatt in here? I thought we had two. All right, the order I get, the more dementia I can get in as well. All right. <laughs> Trying to keep all you guys in line. So we're thankful for that. Amen. Luke chapter 3. As you guys know, every four years we elect a president of the United States. Happens every four years. And hopefully everyone in here participates in that. We, have a, uh, we live in the greatest country and we have that opportunity to, to cast our vote for that individual. And then once that individual is elected, on January 20th, typically on January 20th, something happens. What happens on January 20th? 
we have the president's inauguration, right? We have the president's inauguration on January 20th. And, and this is when their, their official presidency kind of begins. And it's a big deal. It's a big event. I mean, they, they set up right in front of, I believe, the U.S. Capitol building. Um, there's massive crowds. All the news outlets, they're there. Those that voted for them, that won the election, they're there celebrating. You got music. You got singing. And then the, the, the president is sworn in. And then he gives his address to the people. And again, half the country is rejoicing. And half the country is lamenting, right? Because we understand that the next four years will be guided by this individual. Uh, their philosophy of ministry, uh, ministry, <laughs> I wish it was ministry, uh, their convictions, their principles, their philosophy on how this country should be governed, um, it affects all of us for the next four years. Sometimes it's eight years because they get reelected. It affects all of us. And this morning... As we look at Luke chapter 4, Luke chronicles for us and reminds us of another inauguration, a greater inauguration than what we celebrate every four years. This inauguration is greater because it, it doesn't only impact us for four to eight years, but it impacts us for eternity. It impacts our lives forever, as they say in Sandlot. It is the inauguration of Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of His kingdom rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. And because of this great day that we're going to look at and, and read about and study, we celebrate because our hope, our security, and our salvation is not found at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. It's found on the One who sits on the throne of heaven. That's where our hope is. That's where our security is. That's where our salvation is. And that's what we're celebrating and what Luke is pointing us to in Luke chapter 4. The inauguration of Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our King, as our Lord. And so let's look back at this new era in the story of redemption. This day, Jesus' inauguration in history, again, has massive implications for you and me, not only for eternity, but also for every day such as this morning. And we'll see first, we see the inauguration of our Savior, Luke. And we're going to go back to chapter 3, where we ended a couple weeks ago. Luke 3, 21 through 22. And again, a quick recap of Luke chapter 3. If you guys have been with us since we've been studying, John the Baptist, the forerunner, has come on the scene. He is proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. He is paving the way. He's calling the people of Israel back to the King through repentance and baptism. And as John is baptizing all the people, those that are repenting, the first step that they do is to be baptized. And as he's doing this, all of a sudden, in the distance, he sees Jesus coming his way. His cousin, the one he grew up with, playing games with. He, he sees him, but he doesn't see him as his cousin. The Gospel of John tells us he sees us as, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's dunking people. And then all of a sudden, he looks up, he sees Jesus, and he's like, pointing. There He is. Focus on Him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we pick it up in Luke in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. We see right here the, again the, the new day is dawning. A new day in the story of redemption. Uh, this day has been drawing near ever since Genesis 3 when Adam sinned. 
This is the day you've been longing for. The world has been anticipating, and now it's finally here. The king, the serpent crusher, back in Genesis 3, that was promised. The Savior steps out of the shadows and on the center stage. And now it's his game. It's his play. He's ready to fulfill his mission given to him by the Father. Now, real quickly, we know that those that got baptized must first repent of their sins, uh, then and now. First, we, we hear the gospel, we repent of our sins, we acknowledge our sins and our, our separation from God. We repent and believe by faith that Christ is the one who lived the perfect life in our place. He died on the cross for our sins, and we repent of our sins and trust in Him. Did Jesus have to do that because He was baptized? Did Jesus sin? And the answer is absolutely not. We know that Jesus did not sin. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So then why, the question is, why do you have to get baptized? And there's three quick reasons let me give you. One, he had to get baptized to verify, confirm, affirm who John was. That he truly was the one that was prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 40. The one who was going to come before the Messiah and pave the way and point people to him. Uh, it was to fulfill the prophecy made to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 from Gabriel. So it was to verify John's ministry and who he was. Secondly, it was to identify. So first to verify, second to identify with you, with me, with humanity. Jesus, who was sinless, stepped out of heaven to identify with those of us who are sinful. And isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for you and me? That the sinless one loved us so much that he stepped out of heaven to come and identify with you and me. This is great news. I love what Hebrews 2 says. It's one of my favorite passages. It says that Jesus had to become like His brothers in every respect so that He could make and be the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 4.15 said that He succeeded. For It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. In other words, He can, he can, he can enter in and sympathize with us because He was fully human. He went through the temptations. He went through the trials. He went through the deep, dark valleys just like you and me. And He overcame them. And now He was tempted in every way and yet without sin. So that was three. And then finally, third, to finally point us to a greater work yet to be done. The work of His death on the cross. His burial. And then three days later, His resurrection. That all who are baptized are baptized into Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what baptism points to. So these are the three reasons why Jesus had to be baptized. And can you see John a little bit? You know, here's John dunking everyone, cousin. All of a sudden he sees Jesus, and he's like, Jesus like, bro, you now you got to baptize me, cuz. And John be like, Man, whoa, whoa, gee, let's have a little sidebar. Like, what do, what do you mean? I just told everyone I'm not unable to tie your shoes. I'm like, below you, now you want me to baptize you? And Jesus is like, hey, trust me, brother. Just do it. And he did. And there's a practical implication for all of us that we talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about baptism. If you have repented of your sin, the next step of obedience, and the first step of obedience is to be baptized. Uh, to, to be to brought in to the what Christ has accomplished for you, the symbolic of baptism. So if you haven't been baptized yet, but you believe in Christ, next week we're having a baptism. We have a couple baptisms next week that are coming down the pike. We're excited for it. Come see me or one of the pastors. And if you've been baptized as an infant, as a baby like I was, 
And when you come older, we're Baptists here. We believe that it's when one professes his faith in Christ, then to be baptized. And so you might want to get rebaptized. That option is also open up to you. Come and see me. Now, something else is really important here. What we see in Jesus' baptism in this inauguration is that all the Godhead is present. The Father is present, the Son is present, and the Holy Spirit is present. Look at Luke, 21, uh, Luke uh, 3, 21b. The heavens were opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him, Jesus, in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Here we see all of heaven open up, all of heaven rejoicing, and the thundering words of God the Father saying to His Son, You're the man. And you're my man. You are my son. Can you imagine being on site for Jesus' baptism? For this inaugurational service gathering? I mean, there's no bells and whistles. There's no music, right? Just all of heaven opening up. (laughs) The Holy Spirit descending on Him and a voice thundering from heaven. Not a bad sight. So that's the first point. Then we see Luke does something that doesn't seem to fit. He puts the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3. And it's kind of a head-scratcher. It's like, why? If you want genealogy, you begin with it like Matthew did. You start with that. And that takes us to our second point, the legacy of our Savior. And we'll go through this quickly. Luke 3, 23 through 28. Look at verse 23. Then when he began his ministry, about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And again, here's this placement. Again, why, why is it in chapter 3? Why not at the very beginning, like Matthew? Well, Luke is making a very significant theological point that sets the context of what the main point Luke is trying to get across. Again, only Matthew and Luke give us the genealogies of Jesus. Both are not exhaustive, and both have differences. And that's okay, because they are both emphasizing different parts of Jesus and what He's about to do and what He's about to fulfill. Such as in in Matthew's account, uh, notice, if you turn there, you can do it later, but in Matthew chapter 1, the family tree begins with Abraham, and it works its way down to Jesus. And this makes sense because Matthew's primary audience that he's writing to is to Jewish individuals. He's writing to everyone, but primarily to Jewish to show that Jesus is the Jewish, the Messiah. He is the one that is coming from the line of Abraham through the royal kingship of David. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is Israel's Messiah, Savior to come. Luke, on the other hand, isn't writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He's writing primarily to a Gentile audience, those who are not Jews. And he begins with Joseph, Jesus' dad, and works his way back, not just to Abraham, but he goes all the way to Adam. Why? This is so important. This is so important, and this is, this is really good news for you and me. The reason why it goes back to Abraham uh, to Adam, I'm sorry, he goes back to Adam is because he's saying that Jesus is not only the Savior of the Jews, but He's the Savior of the whole world. He's the Savior of the Jews and the Gentiles. He's the Savior of all the nations, every tribe, every tongue. We're going to all be worshiping with Jesus in Revelation 4. So that's great news for you and me because the majority of us in here are all Gentiles. I think all of us are Gentiles. We have a, a couple who are partially Jewish, but we're all Gentiles. So He is our Savior. 
But there's another massive implication, another reason why that Luke connects Jesus and Adam for you and me. And it's this. When God created Adam, Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve, they were our first representatives. They represented you and me. They were our human representatives. And how if they obeyed and they followed the Lord, then all was going to be good. But they didn't, right? They sinned. They, they fell in epic fashion. And because they fell in epic fashion, we were without hope. We were without salvation. We needed another Adam. We needed a second Adam to come and be our representative. And this is why it's so important that uh, Luke is pointing us to Adam because it tells us that Jesus is identifying as our second Adam, as our human representative. And how did Jesus do as our representative? He was perfect. Therefore, we have hope. Romans 5.19 says this, For as by one man, Adam, man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. That is a massive point that Luke is pointing us to. And that's why he puts the genealogy here, and he takes it all the way from Joseph to Adam. And these two truths set the stage for the temptation of Jesus, which is also very important. And that takes us to our third point, the victory of our Savior in Luke 4, 1 through 12. Now, what we just talked about, why Luke put the genealogy there. He's pointing out that Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. He is our, our representative. He is the second Adam. Because when we hear and go over this passage, and probably the way you've heard this passage taught, is this passage is all about how to overcome temptation. How many have heard this passage taught that way? Go ahead and raise your hand. That's the main point of this passage. How do you want to overcome temptation? That's not the main point of this passage. It is a point, but it's not the point. And this is so crucial for us to understand. This is why we go through books of the Bible. Line by line and verse by verse. So we get the author's intended meaning first and foremost. The reason why this is so crucial, because the primary point of this text is Luke is pointing out to us that Jesus is the true and better Adam. That Jesus is the true and better Israel. What is happening here is Jesus is coming on the scene and beginning to reverse the curse. To bring salvation to the forefront, to His people. And He does this by defeating Satan. He is doing what Adam failed to do when Adam was tempted in Genesis 3 by Satan. He is also doing what Israel failed to do when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They caved. They failed as our representatives. Again, which left us with no hope, with no salvation. But Jesus will come and He will overcome Satan's temptations to prove that He is the conquering King. That He is the Messiah. He is our perfect Savior. He truly is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And listen, because of that, because of Jesus' victory as our representative, we can have confidence in our salvation. That He was the true Messiah. And now we have the ability to meet Satan head-on when he comes to tempt us because the victory has already been won. This is why Luke ends Adam with Adam and his genealogy to connect the first Adam's failure to the second Adam's victory. 
And that's huge. And that's the main point of this text. Now, we see that Jesus is tempted. This is part of it. He is tempted. Now, while he was in the wilderness, there was probably multiple temptations. We see that in verse 13. There was every temptation. When he, the devil was done with every temptation, he left him for another time. But here, Luke highlights the three climactic ones. And, and some commentators say that these three climactic uh, temptations, really, really, you can put every temptation under these three banners. One says, it, it, it refers to 1 John 2.16, and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I've kind of labeled it this way. The temptation of provision, the temptation of prestige, and the temptation of possession or protection. Provision, prestige, and protection. Now get this, again, in the baptism of Jesus, in His inauguration, we saw the heavens open up. Well, now we're about to see all hell unleashed on Jesus in Luke chapter 4. So the first temptation. The first temptation. Look at it in verse 3. Or the first to start in verse 1. 4, one. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, he was hungry. Now we know after a presidential inauguration, uh, the next big thing that happens is what? The president's kind of first act of office, right? And it's usually he does some big deal. It's a bearing on stage and he, he does something big. Well, this is the same with Jesus. He does something big. What is his first act? He goes to war. He goes to war. He goes out and meets the devil in the wilderness. This, this attack on Jesus doesn't come from the devil. It comes from the Holy Spirit leading our King, our Savior, our Lord out to the battlefield. Jesus is not passive in this incident. He is active. He is seeking this out. He is not a victim, but he is the aggressor. He knows why he has come. He's come to defeat Satan, to defeat sin, and to defeat death. He is no coward. He goes right to work. His first act is to go to war. And we notice again, this is Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. Look at he's he's full of the Holy Spirit, verse one. He's led by the Spirit in verse one as well. Jesus in His humanity, submits to leading, guiding, and the direction of the Holy Spirit in His life. And the Holy Spirit leads Him out to the wilderness, out to the battle, out to the fight. There, there's, a, there's a little important practical note for us in this, for our lives. Because sometimes we just think like, oh, if I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit is only going to lead me to green pastures. He's only going to lead me to a life of ease. It's not the case. Sometimes the, the Holy Spirit will lead us into the battlefield. He'll lead us to the valley of the shadow of death. He'll take us from one mountaintop, from one green pasture. He'll lead us down the valley to get us to another mountaintop experience, another green valley, a green pasture. The Holy Spirit all the time, though, is leading. He leads you and me through the good times and the bad times. Notice also Jesus' humanity here. He has not eaten in 40 days. He's famished. He's probably as close to death as he'll ever be until the crucifixion. He's hungry. He's isolated. And he's tired. This is the perfect time for the enemy to attack. The perfect time for the enemy to come and tempt him. Contrast that to Adam. 
in Genesis chapter 3. Because again, that's what Luke is doing. He's contrasting the first Adam that failed to the second Adam that succeeded. Adam in the first temptation had perfect circumstances. He was in a perfect garden. He wasn't isolated. He had his wife Eve with him. He had a full belly. He had a, a bunch of food to eat. He wasn't famished and he wasn't tired. There was no sin and yet he, didn't, he wasn't tired. And yet he failed. Jesus, in the worst circumstances, overcame. He knows what it means to go through the wilderness valley. We see also in this section there's two characters. There's only two. There's Jesus and Satan. We see that Satan speaks over 90 words and Jesus speaks around 40. So evidently the father of lies is chatty and relevant, right? He likes to talk, and of course he does. He likes to hear himself speak, and so he, he speaks twice as much as Jesus. Look at verse 3. And the devil said to Jesus, now we enter the temptation, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. That word if, and some translators say, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. In other words, Satan is saying like, this doesn't make sense. If you truly are the Son of God, why are you hungry? Why are you starving out here? Why isn't your Father providing for you? That's not very loving of a father to not provide for his children. He's not giving you food for anything for 40, 40 days? That sounds pretty brutal. It's not very loving. What's your father doing? What kind of father doesn't provide for his own son? These are kind of the attacks that he is getting to Jesus. And then he says, Satan says, it's okay to use your power to help yourself out, to give yourself a little attaboy, to make food out of stones. Go ahead, use your power for yourself, for your own purpose. And at the heart of this temptation is Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to use his power to satisfy himself rather than trusting in God's provision. Rather than trusting in God to provide for Jesus, to sustain Jesus in the wilderness. You ever been there? Has this temptation ever come to you? Hey, I'm a child of God. I've given my life up to follow you, Lord. Why, why does my life look like this? Why am I going through some hard times? Why don't I have everything that I need? Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever said that to yourself? Have you, has that ever been whispered in your ear? How come God isn't taking better care of me? I've had that thought. I'm sure you guys have had that thought. Some of you guys might have that thought right now. And here's the question. The question is, are you going to believe and bend an ear to the father of lies or are you going to believe in the promises of God for your provision? The good father who said he's going to take care of you and give you everything that you need for life and godliness. Jesus answers with the latter. He's going to trust his father. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And here Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, to overcome this temptation by trusting God for His provision, for His sustenance. And again, what He's doing is He's, he's using the Scripture. Jesus is reminding Himself of how the Father took care of the nation Israel when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And Jesus is saying, He took care of those people, Jewish people, Israel then. He's going to take care of me now. That's who I'm going to trust. And he trusts, and again, the Lord's provision. That leads us to the second temptation, the prestige, the, the temptation of prestige in verses 5 through 8. Notice Satan doesn't give up, but baits the hook again with another temptation. Look at verse 5. 
and the devil dwelt, uh, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment time. And he said to them, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, to me personally, as I read these and I study this, this is probably the most difficult temptation. The, the prestige, the glory. Every human being wants that at their core. Do we not? We want people to look at us and say, like, oh, you're the man. You're awesome. You're the best. And think about the scene in which Satan tempted Jesus with this. Probably some kind of vision where in an instant he, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine saying, hey, I'm going to give you all this, all the kingdoms of the world, all the wealth that that brings, all the advancements, all the achievements, all the billions of people that will look to you as their ruler and bow their knee to you. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine that temptation? All you have to do is bend the knee to me. All you have to do is worship me, Jesus. I think this is the, the most powerful temptation, in particular for me and probably for you, because this is what Satan is saying. He's saying to Jesus, you can have the crown without the cross. You can have the crown without the cross. Satan here is offering the wide road, the shortcut, the path of least resistance. Who doesn't like that? I do. Who doesn't like that to obtain the goal? The easy route. I love how one points that he says this, Satan offers Jesus the ecstasy, the ecstasy without the agony, without the betrayal, without the mockery, without the lashings, without the abandonment, without the nails, without the wrath. Can you see how powerful this temptation is? And Jesus knows as good as this sounds, He will not take the bait. And amen for that. Why? Because He understands if He takes the bait, if He bows the knee to Satan and worships Him, then the devil becomes His Lord. And now He serves Him. Eternity is on the line here for you and me. And Jesus steps in and steps up and doesn't take the bait. Because this is Satan's goal when tempting all of us. Satan wants to hold the, the, hold the position of prominence and preeminence in your life and in my life. He offers up the life of ease. The easy way, the, the wide road. Not the difficult one. And He promises to give us the world. Well, Jesus recognizes this and answers. And Jesus answered him, it is written, He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall worship the Lord God, and Him only shall you serve. Praise the Lord. Takes us to the third temptation. The third temptation is the temptation of protection, verses 9-11. through 11. Look at verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And Satan, you know, again, another scene, he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and he, and he challenges him to say, hey, do this spectacular event so everyone can see that you truly are the Messiah. Throw yourself down from him and save yourself. 
The temple was the highest point. And when you get to the top of the temple, everyone's eyes would be like, oh man, look at, there's, there's Jesus up there. He, and he throws himself off and the angels will take care of him. You will do this spectacular, this miraculous event and the people will automatically worship you. You are the Messiah. You are the true one. Look at this spectacular event you just did. Ah, don't worry about how God has planned it out. God the Father has planned it out through kind of boring obedience, suffering, servanthood. No, let's do something spectacular. And then Satan does something that's different from the other temptations. What does he do? He quotes the Bible. Because Satan is kind of caught on with Jesus. He's like, man, this guy, this guy, Jesus, man, he's like, Bible, Bible, Bible. Bible, Bible, Bible. All Jesus does is answer me with the Bible. So guess what? I know the Bible. Do you know why Jesus, I mean, Satan knows the Bible? Because he studied it in heaven when he was a good angel until he fell. He had the best teachers. He knows the Bible better than all of us combined. And so Satan says, okay, you like the Bible? I'm going to give you a little Bible. And he quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12, but he quotes it incorrectly. But that's okay. He does it on purpose. It's not that he forgot something. He's twisting the Scripture because that's what the father of lies does. He twists the Scripture. We see that all over our culture. That we see men, women, twist the Scripture to make it say what they want it to say. And you can make the Bible say anything you want. Did you know that the Bible says there is no God? The Bible says there is no God in Psalm 14. But it also says this, before it says there is no God, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So you can twist the scripture any way you want it. And we see that happening all over the world for men and women to use the Bible for their power, to affirm their lifestyle. They twist the scripture. And this is what the devil is doing. Again, he quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12. For it is written... He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. In verse 11, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, Jesus will have none of it. He knows the Scriptures. He knows what the devil is trying to do. He knows what he's left out. And this is what Jesus says in Luke 4, verse 12. And Jesus answered him, It is said. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord God to the test. You shall not put the Lord God to your test. And he passes it. And we see at these three climactic ones over these 40 days, he's been tempted, he's been peppered by the devil. The devil leaves. And he says, I'm going to come back again at another opportune time. Satan was defeated. He was over in all of his temptations, tempting Jesus. Jesus went to battle and he won the war as the second Adam, as our representative. And that's great news for us. Again, because of Jesus' perfect obedience, we have surety of our salvation. There's a lot more to be said, but I love how Sinclair Ferguson summed up Jesus' victory as our representative. This is what he said. Jesus has come to bring victory where there has been defeat. To obey where there has been disobedience. To bring justification where there was condemnation. To bring freedom where there was bondage. To bring healing where there was suffering. To bring blessing where there was been a curse. And to bring life 
where there has been death. This is what Jesus accomplished for you and me in His first act of office in the temptation. How do we respond? There's going to be times when we go through this book where our response, hopefully, is thank you, is worship, is gratitude. Because we know we couldn't do it on ourselves. We needed a substitute. We needed a representative. We needed someone to live and obey perfectly in our place because we couldn't do it. And Jesus did. And so when we hear this, we rejoice with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. You have accomplished this for us. So that's primarily what this text is about. Now, I do want to do something quickly. I do want to cover some of Jesus' counsel on how He overcame temptation, because that's a real reality for us. We all are going to be tempted. We all need the resources, the tools, the tactics to overcome temptation, and we glean some good ones here in Luke chapter 4 for you and for me. And so let's do that real quick. First, here's the first thing you have to acknowledge, that Satan is real. He's a real fallen angel. He's a real being. He's just not a metaphor for evil. He's just not a personification for evil. He is evil. He exists, and He is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And so that's number one. We acknowledge that there is a being out there with a third of heaven that fell with Him. We call them demons, fallen angels, that He sends out against you and me. The one thing about Satan we need to remember, though, he's not like God. He's not... On the present, he can't be everywhere at all times. He's a singular being, so he can only be in one fixed location at a time. But he sends out his minions, his demons, to tempt you, to test you. So that's number one. If you don't believe in demons and a real being, Satan, and you think he's just a metaphor, then you're already defeated. And he's going to eat your lunch. So that's number one. We believe that he is. And then number two, Jesus in this passage gives us two frontline defense tactics. Did you guys catch them? What are, the, what are the two tactics that Jesus gives us in this to defeat and to stand firm against Satan? What's number What's Give me one of them. Just yell it out. The Word. The Bible. Yes. Yes, the Bible. Number one, we got to know our Bibles because Satan knows his Bible. We got to know our Bibles. We see that Jesus, he quotes Scripture. He didn't have to quote Scripture because anything he says is Scripture. But he chose to quote Deuteronomy when Israel was in the wilderness, when they were battling and fighting temptation. He chose to quote what Moses wrote. In verse 4, it says, it is written. In verse 7, it is written. In verse 12, it is said. So we've got to know the Word. We've got to study the Word. We've got to meditate on the Word. We've got to challenge one another with the Word. We've got to know the Word if we're going to stand firm. What's the second thing? What's that? Eyes on God. Good. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Again, this passage is bookend with the Spirit of God. And it's to submit to the Holy Spirit, to His leading, His guiding, His directing. Why? Because He will lead us to the ways of God. The, the, God the Father sends the Son. God the Father and Jesus then send the Spirit. And the Spirit only leads, acts, and speaks on behalf of what Jesus and God the Father say. 
So that's the second thing. We need to be controlled. We need to be led by the Spirit. Luke loves the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit is mentioned 15 times in these first four verses. He is calling attention to the Holy Spirit. We're like the other Matthew, like Matthew, I think, mentions him like maybe 15 times total. He's massively important. So this is how we are to stand firm. We are to stand firm with the Word, empowered and illuminated by the Spirit. So look at your life right now. Are you right now in the wilderness? Has Satan baited a hook in front of you right now? And oh, it looks so good. He's dangling in front of you right now. Are you going to bite? Are you going to bite? Again, how do we stand firm? How do we fight that? We remember the promises in the Word of God. That we acknowledge that, hey, All sin, sin leads to what? Sin leads to death. But obedience to God's Word leads to life. Not only for eternity, but also in the here and now. So follow God's Word. All of us are being tempted every single day to disobey God's Word. And that's only going to lead to ultimately death. But when we obey God's Word, it leads to life. And again, we can only obey it in the power of God of the Holy Spirit. That when the temptations come up, that we listen to that little voice in our head, don't bite, don't bite, don't bite, don't bite. Not good, not good, not good, not good. Let it pass. Let it float by. Let it float by. Let it float by. And instead, feast on God's Word. So that's how we overcome temptation. We submit to the Holy Spirit and we submit to God's Word. But here's the thing. Some of you right now are saying, man, last night the hook was set. No, the the temptation came and I bit. And I only did, not only did I bite, I bit and I swallowed that thing whole. Hook, line, and sinker. Some of us are in there right now. And it's what takes us back to Luke chapter 4. Because our identity, our worth, the way God looks at us is not in our ability. He looks at us through the lens of Luke chapter 4 and what our representative Christ did on our behalf. And when He sees you even in the midst of sin, even in the midst when you and I have taken the, the hook, and we took a bite. Doesn't change our standing. He's still our Lord. He's still our Savior. And you and I are still saints. That's good news, isn't it? That's the gospel implication of Luke chapter 4 and what Christ did on your behalf and my behalf. And so let's, let's take a step back and let's look at Luke chapter 4 and see the goodness of God in our representative, Christ Jesus, our perfect Savior, our victorious King, our friend. That's gospel. That's good news. And this is where our hope and confidence rest. It rests in Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. It rests in Jesus, overcoming sin, overcoming Satan, overcoming death, and giving us life and life abundantly. Joy, peace.
peace, grace, hope, and ultimately eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Luke chapter 4. Thank You for Jesus where our first representative, Adam, failed. He took the ball. He raised his hand. He volunteered to be the second Adam, the second representative, and he succeeded. He was victorious in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.